Let me pray for us briefly and then we'll begin. Our Father, we give you praise for your word and we pray now that your word would go forward and do the work that only it can do. We pray you would give us soft hearts and ears to hear and we pray that Christ Jesus would be exalted in our midst as we behold you from your word this morning and we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. It is a privilege for me to be here uh, with you this morning. I praise God for you and for your love for the gospel and desiring it to see it go forward. I've actually met you in part through your leadership before even being here. About a year and a half ago, I had the privilege of, of meeting and being with Jeremy and with, with Godwin and with Blaine, of course, who is now in the UAE, and, and Jeremy is coming back, and we praise God for this, how the Lord has opened the door and is opening doors in the Middle East for the gospel to go forward. I know that um, Jeremy leaving is a big loss. Uh, it is the gospel's gain. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ who praise God where I am uh, that Jeremy is coming and is pastoring such a strategic and important church in that part of the world. And so we, we praise God for that. I hope that you will pray for Jeremy and his family uh, as, as they prepare to go and that the gospel really would go forward. I'm also thankful for um, Glenn and Heather Keith. They've opened up their home to me this weekend and allowed me to stay there, for which I'm very thankful. And, of course, Heather has pursued opening a company in Ross Alkheimer, for which I praise God for that kind of initiative and risk. She actually has one of the most interesting stories in Iraq. In one of her visits, I think a number of you would know, but she actually visited with our ruler, uh, Sheikh Saud bin Sakhar al-Qasimi, at the camel tracks. Um, that's not something you get to do every day, and Heather got to do it, and it was exciting to hear about. I think it's one of the most unique experiences anyone has had. It's a privilege to pastor and to preach where I live. It's a place desperately in need of the gospel. Uh, The local peoples there are unreached, and Christ Jesus is not known and treasured. And so it's a privilege to be there with my family. And it's my hope this morning that as we open God's word, you will behold our God, and you'll be encouraged uh, from the scriptures afresh, or maybe for the first time, by who God is. Promises are like babies. They're easy to make, hard to deliver. (laughs) Napoleon said that the best way to keep your word is never to give it. Uh, There was a British rock group way back in the 80s called Naked Eyes. Anyone remember Naked Eyes? That was back when Jeremy was probably just starting out as pastor here, 1980s. Well, they had a hit song, and in the chorus it said this, you make me promises, promises. Knowing I'd believe, promises, promises, you knew you'd never keep. What is it about the world that we live in that we believe that promises are those things so often that are made to be broken? Promises are assurances that people make between each other. They're the foundations in many ways that economies are built upon. And they're the same things that people hire expensive lawyers just to ensure that people have incentive to keep. Whose promises can we rely on in this world? Whose promises can we trust? Whose word is good for something? Whose word can we build something as important as our lives upon? Well, this morning, as the missions conference concludes, we're simply going to behold God and who He is, his unrelenting faithfulness, his grace, and the certainty of what God is doing in the world. A certainty that you must have if you're going to risk upon this God. 
and venture out upon His name because you believe in His promises. A certainty you must have if you want to proclaim this God to the nations. And we're going to behold Him by considering a moment that was pivotal in the history of God's people. So we come to this text this morning. The people of God are in a a moment in their history in which they wonder, has our God made promises He can't keep? They know their past. Mighty deliverance from the hands of the Egyptians. They had heard about that from their forefathers when they were enslaved. They, They knew that their God had miraculously given them land. And yet here they are, not in the land, but about to be in exile, away from the land under the great superpower yet again of their day because they no longer believed and lived faithfully under the good word of their God. They had questions. Maybe you come with questions for God this morning. Do God's promises fail? Does he make promises he can't keep can we trust God still in this world to venture out on his name and to make him known to people who don't know him and yet what we'll see in this text God does not forsake his people God does not forsake his promises into a desperate situation in the life of the history of the people of God God speaks he gives his word And he makes promises. And so what we'll see in Isaiah 40, Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, is that the God who rules over everything gives his word in promise to his people. Let's begin with the God whose word brings comfort. That's the first point. The God whose word brings comfort. Verses 1 to 11. Now, if you're like me at all, you remember when you were growing up, and you had done something terribly wrong, and you knew that you were in trouble, you weren't sure what your parents were going to say, but you knew when they saw you, you were in big, big trouble. In those moments, maybe it's your parent, maybe now it's your boss, you wonder, what is the next word going to be for me? What will they say? That's precisely where the nation of Israel is when we come to Isaiah 40 this morning. They are in exile under Babylonian rule. They've rejected God's good word, and God had a word for his people in Isaiah 40. Look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double For all her sins. That is a word of grace. God gives to his people who should have known his judgment grace. So, for his exiled people, judgment is not the final word. See, even from this, the commitment of God to his people. God's people have sinned, they've not believed their God, and God remains committed to his own. He speaks tenderly to Jerusalem, who are no longer physically in Jerusalem, but as the text makes clear, they're still Jerusalem. So he wants his people to know that though you're away from the land of promise, I'm committed to you, 
I'm with you. And what's more, God promises her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That simply means, as, as one writer said, punishment has been accepted for iniquity. So Isaiah never compromises the holiness of God by minimizing sin. Isaiah is going to go on majestically to develop uh, this idea of a servant who's mysteriously going to come into history and atone for the sins of his people. God is committed, inexplicably committed, to displaying grace, to giving grace. And the proof, God makes the provision to atone for sin. All of grace. We can't atone for ourselves. God meets us, not finally with the word of judgment, but here for his people, a word of grace. I'll see for a fresh, maybe for the first time, see how gracious the God is we proclaim to the nations. God's grace would be cheap if he treated us as if we were really okay. We just need a little help. That's not the picture we're being given here at all. Isaiah displays God's grace as something realistic and incomparable because it's given to people who are unclean, who know that they have failed God. And that's what God gives to people who have failed Him. Real grace. Maybe you've wrestled with what Christianity really teaches even at a missions conference. Maybe you've wondered, is this just a bunch of rules? People who just get together to do a little self-help to make them feel better. That's not it at all. And that's good news. That's glorious news. That's news worthy to be proclaimed to the world. The Bible doesn't teach you that you need to be better. The Bible teaches you fundamentally you need to be made new. New. So by forsaking the trust that you're putting in yourself or, or your works or your relatively good life and looking to this grace which put, has been put on display in Jesus Christ, you can be made not better, but new. Oh, you'll be better, but you'll be new. Re- by repenting, by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work, what he did in his life and his death on the cross, you can know for certainty As Isaiah says here in this text, your sin has been paid for, dealt with. Jesus came to deal with real wrongdoing, with real wrongdoers. So if you know you're a wrongdoer, turn to Jesus. His grace will cover you even this morning. God's people are in exile, but God is not done with his people. To their surprise, God's going to come to his people. Look at verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As you work your way through the Old Testament, what is so clear is that preparation must be made for the appearance of God. 
Verse 3 here, it's quoted by all four of the Gospels. John the Baptist uses that text to prepare the people of God for the ultimate appearance of God in Jesus Christ. Although his people are in the wilderness, they're in the desert itself, God will visit his people. God has bound himself to his people. And he will not stop identifying with the messiness of his own people. God's going to meet his people. Isaiah makes use of every type of terrain on the earth there in verse 4. To to, to make the point that the world will be transformed. To be made ready for the coming of the king. For the display of his glory to the world. That will be no small event. Because in his coming, his glory will be revealed. So unlike now, it will not be hidden. Now on that day, Isaiah is clear all mankind together will see it. In his gospel, Luke shows John the Baptist taking this very verse and saying yet again, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is completely happy and feels completely justified in ignoring the true God. Somehow acting as if the God who is is not there. Doesn't it give you comfort to know for certain that God will not be ignored forever? There will be an unmistakable, a visible demonstration of His glory. And we want worshipers made ready for that day. When He puts His glory on visible display. All mankind, all flesh will see his glory. And the glory of the Lord is Jesus. The glory of the Lord was displayed in the crucified Messiah as he turned the wisdom and the strength of this world on its head. And yet his glory will be ultimately unveiled when Jesus comes again to show without mistake He's the king of the universe. The king in his beauty. And all flesh will see it. Not just a remnant. And he will vindicate his own before the world. Isaiah is doing something inexplicable here. He is promising the marginalized, exiled people of God that God is going to move spectacularly on the world stage. We do not proclaim a God to the nations who will underwhelm, who is weak. Exile is not the end of their story, and it is not the end of our story. Your hope in God, every action you take in faith in God, will prove not to be loss, but gain. Oh, I want you to see in Jesus Christ, God is unmistakably for us. He's for us. The glory he's going to reveal to the world will be ours to share with the Savior. Here we know suffering. Then we will know irreversible joy and hope and glory. The pastor Thomas Watson said, if you are in covenant with God, he says to you, you are mine, then all that is in God is yours. My wisdom will be yours to teach you. My holiness will be yours to sanctify you. My mercy will be yours to save you. God is a whole ocean of blessedness. If there is enough in him to fill the angels, then surely he has enough to fill us. What's the guarantee for this promise? 
How do we know? Well, Isaiah simply says that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you see that? The guarantee is that God has issued his word. And that is comfort enough. What God declares in heaven comes to pass on earth every time. Always. And the word which brings comfort is the most certain and it is the most lasting power in this universe. Look at at verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Now there is a gutsy confidence in what Isaiah is portraying here. Remember that Isaiah writes to the people of God who will be in exile but are not yet in exile. So he's riding with an eye toward the future. And he's putting himself out there. He's putting his God out there. Maybe this won't be true. Perhaps his word will not stand forever. Maybe it will fade into the recesses of history. And yet consider this. This word issued so long ago remains today, even as we behold it this morning. And it remains as it goes forward in hard places in this world. And it opens doors and hearts that we never thought would be opened. See this from this text. What is so seemingly permanent and lasting is not permanent. Is not lasting. There are great buildings in the Middle East. There are great institutions and buildings in Boston. You have great ambitions for your life. All of that is temporary. All of that will fade. The exile into which these people had been driven will not and did not last forever. And that which you are tempted to believe in your own life is going to last and last and last will not. Don't live your life for what amounts to be nothing more than grass. Like grass, it will wither and like a flower. It will fade and fall. In a world of fading dreams and temporary reality, we have the sure foundation, we have the lasting joy of this God to proclaim and to live our lives bringing glory to. Notice this contrast here between men which are like grass and His glory like the flower and the breath of the Lord which the Lord blows and He causes to wither and fall. The Spirit of the Lord which gives life also gives death. So grace and judgment are both at work in this world. The people who are flesh and like grass as nothing before God's Spirit. God's people were in captivity in the midst of a people whose glory faded. But the glory of their God will never fade wasn't the first time, even in their own history, that the people of God had been ruled by the world's superpower. And yet the great comfort they're being given is that it is not the word of the Babylonians that will have the final say. It is the word of their God. And it's not the word of this nation either that will have the final say in the world. 
It is the word of our God. Brothers and sisters, in a world that often feels and seems chaotic, our God reigns. And we have a great God to proclaim to the world. And God is opening doors in the world for his gospel to go forward and his word to triumph. What a privilege all of us in Christ have to participate, to invest in what God is doing here and what God is doing on the, on the other side of the world. To pray, to go, to give. God is on the move. And he's on the move in unlikely places and in unlikely ways in the world. Proof positive is a little church that has popped up in Rack, UAE. With believers from many nations beholding this God. Oh, believer, trust that God's word will not fail. No matter what your eyes, no matter what your, your own mind sometimes tells you, God's word is the surest, most powerful force in the universe. It endures. Isaiah proclaims in verse 9, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, behold your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That is the proclamation of victory in what appears to be defeat. This is like your team being down by a lot of points at halftime. And you going out and saying with certainty we're going to win. And you probably do that anyway because you're all Patriots fans. (laughs) Don't fear what the world's circumstances are telling you. This is your God. Behold your God. Look at who he is. This is what you must do when it appears that that the world and that wickedness are going to triumph. This is what you must do when you're going to risk in his name. Behold him and behold what he has done. You can be sure God will win. And when he does, he will include you in his triumph. Look at the way God uses his might. This God who rules over everything will tend his flock like a shepherd gathering lambs in his arms, carrying them close to his heart, gently leading those with young. Exile is not going to be the final word from God. Gathering his people in, caring for his people, will be the final word of our God. Right now, we're all in exile. In Christ, we're away from our homeland. But we fully expect we will be gathered under the strong arm of our God, That's the great hope of the gospel. That's what we proclaim. God comforts his people with his word, even in the worst of circumstances. And he can do this because ultimately he is the God who is incomparable. That's the second point. The God who is incomparable. Just imagine what you would think if you'd been forcibly conquered, displaced from your homeland, And living in another nation, a reality so many people in this world know right now, a reality by God's grace I have the privilege of seeing when I preach, where I preach in people's lives. You don't want to be there. 
You can imagine what regular Israelites were thinking as they read this text. Could it be that our God is weak? Could it be that the Babylonian gods are greater? And then beginning in verse 12, we see God's response just by simply proclaiming His incomparable nature. Notice all the ways that God demands His people reckon with His power, both in deed and in word. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand or with the breadth of His hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed Him as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him? And who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught Him knowledge or showed Him the path of understanding? Those are rhetorical questions. If God is God, of course He's done all these things. Notice how Isaiah is prosecuting the case of our God from the fact that He alone created the world. No help from anyone. So, under the Babylonians, the people of God would have become familiar with the Babylonian gods. And the Babylonian creation story was one in which there was chaos and and conflict and a world came from that. There is no struggle with Yahweh. His people can be sure that because of this kind of power, exile and hopeless circumstances are not beyond His sovereign control. Notice he asked the same question in verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare Him to? Then again in verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. One of the false notions that the people in this city and in many other cities carry around in our day is that God is a lot like us. Just a little bit better and a little bit different. You know, God is there just to provide just a little help when we need it. So kind of God to show up in that way. But that's not what Isaiah is saying. God is saying repeatedly, blatantly, no one, nothing can compare with me. And the fact that God is incomparable in this way proves he, he alone is worthy of our worship and our trust. So just as with Israel here, so with believers now, we are tempted, so tempted to put our trust in, in something other than God. What we can see. So I was thinking about these questions even this morning. It occurred to me these are a great set of questions to walk through regularly in your own life. Maybe even this afternoon. Maybe at periodic times in your week. Ask yourself, who compares with God? Who is God's equal? The answer is no one. No one compares with God. You know, our our lives are lived in worship. All of our lives are lived in worship. We're doing what we do because we love what we love. And the great philosopher and theologian Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. If all of life is worship, we want to ask ourselves, for whose glory do we live? Whose glory do we work? And we want to ask whether we are rightly jealous for this God to be worshipped among the nations. To be given the glory that is His due. 
in his world? What are ways that you in your life can strategize to make the glory of this incomparable God known? In your life, in your circumstances, what can you do to make his glory known? His glory can be made known in a moment. God can do whatever he wants. Far more often, God's glory is made known over the long haul. As his people strategize, as God's people sacrifice again and again to make it known. That's the great call of missions. That's the work to which we're aiming. To see God's glory beheld, to see God treasured among a people where it currently isn't. And it should be the great ambition that fuels all of our lives. Whether you stay in Boston or you leave for the other side of the world, consider what you can do in this body. Through your involvement in this body over the next year, over the next five years, over the next ten years to make the glory of God known. Here and in other places. The world will never see and savor enough of the glory of our God. So whether you commit to praying regularly and sacrificially or giving or going with your life, leave a legacy of laboring for the glory of God. God asserts his incomparability. And as a part of that, he asserts his transcendence. His transcendence is his utter otherness beyond everything in the world. Nothing is greater than God. He declares that in verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman cast it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Do you hear it? The drumbeat of God's supremacy over everything on display in this in these verses. He asserts his greatness over the nations. Asserting that they're like a drop in a bucket in verse 15. They're as nothing in verse 17. He asserts his greatness over all peoples. Verse 22, he sits enthroned not with, but above the circle of the earth. And the people that we so fear, like grasshoppers. In verse 23, we learn that he brings princes and rulers to nothing. There could be no stronger assertion of the greatness of God over everything that is given in these verses. 
His majesty, His dominion are shown to be utterly unlimited. Compared to this God, the whole world is as nothing. Do you feel just how powerless the people of God would have felt in this moment? They would have read this and they would have seen the foreign power under who they lived and they would have been viewed as serving a weak God. And yet God is clear. This world empire will be finished in a moment. And as it was then, it will be in our day as well. That's why Christians cannot boast in our nationalities. Christians are people from many nations, many backgrounds, each one of our nations as nothing before God. What holds Christians together most fundamentally is we've experienced the same reconciliation with God through the same cross. We've experienced and come to believe in the same Jesus. The peoples from the nations, the people to whom we cross oceans, to to meet national boundaries to reach, they are the prize of Jesus. And you, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, you're his prize. Heaven and earth will be decimated by his word, but he will move heaven and earth for your good. And he has you. Do you see this? The God who reigns above the nations came to save the nations. And that's the other side of the transcendence of God. So unlike our Muslim friends, we don't have a God who is simply far off. We have the God who in Jesus Christ came near. That's why Isaiah began this chapter proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. It's why John the Baptist used the same language to prepare for the coming of Jesus because astonishingly, God really came into this world and he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. The God who rules over everything in this world subjected himself to human flesh and to all that life in this world brings with it. The transcendence and the eminence of God. The God who is over all dwells with his people. So if you're, if you're ever evangelizing a Muslim, or if you're from a Muslim background, even this morning, I want you to see from the Old Testament That Isaiah is pointing to this God who would mysteriously come near and meet with his people and be with his people in all of our brokenness and in all of our need. His visitation into the world mysteriously through Jesus Christ was not a deviation from the plan. It was the plan. It was the expectation of the entire Old Testament. This is the great comfort we take in God when, when like his people who have gone before us, we can't make sense of what's going on in our little world and in the world at large. We are confident we serve the God who came near, who faced suffering, who faced evil head on. This God, before whom the rulers of the world are as nothing, came near in Jesus and let himself be made nothing by the rulers of this earth. The God whom the nations are as nothing willingly suffered and died to save the nations. Oh, brothers and sisters, behold your God. Behold your God who sits on the throne and he does everything that he pleases and all that he pleases to do is good. There's no God like this God. No God who can contain your joy, who can contain the joys for which the peoples of this world were made. 
No God with this kind of power. As Isaiah makes clear in verse 26. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. There are more than several trillion stars in the universe. The incomparable God calls them all by name. None of them missing. With a word, he flung them into space. And if God does not forget stars, he will not forget you as his precious child. Isaiah reasons God is the creator of it all, and yet the the message he's driving home is, as one person said, his people are his central concern. This is your God. Behold him. The cross is irrefutable proof that he will win the prize for his son. You know, this is what gives me confidence in lonely, discouraging days and periods over the last three years of my life. That God is committed to ensuring that the gospel will go forward and that the son will have the prize for which he died. It fuels you to keep going. And because we believe him, we trust in him, we expend ourselves for him. We're confident that Gospel pictures like the one that's emerging where I live and other parts of the world must emerge and will emerge because God is committed to his glory in this way. God will finish the work. He gives us the privilege of participating in it. That brings us to Isaiah's final point, the God who sustains, verses 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, And complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There's a number of ways that you can think about the transcendence of God. Clearly, Isaiah would have you see it does not mean he doesn't care. How can the people of God ever say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? The everlasting God who never gets tired knows the plight of his people. Derek Kidner said the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he is too great to care. The right one is that he is too great to fail. It's in his greatness that the depth of his care is shown. Do you ever struggle to think God has no idea what's going on in my life? He doesn't care. If you ever find yourself risking for the name of God, Isaiah wants you to see your way is not hidden. He knows and he sees and he's ruling your life and doing everything in Christ for your good. God will bring justice and God always has his people exactly where he wants his people and he never forsakes his people and he will not forsake you. Isaiah closes with the assurance that God gives himself to the weak. Notice this. The God who does not grow weary, verse 28, 
gives strength to the weary. The youths, the, the, the very people who epitomize what it is to have strength and endurance, the ones who seem synonymous with life, they grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. And yet not those who wait in hope for the Lord. God gives them renewed strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. This God will not fail. And He will not fail you. He did not fail His people then who were clinging to His Word for every promise of hope in their life. And He will not fail us who are clinging to His Word in hope for the future. In Jesus, every promise of God is yes and amen. Waiting in trust upon this God is the most logical and rational thing you can do in this world because it's His world. And He rules it. And the Word which brought this world into existence sustains it, and the Word is going forward, and it will accomplish every purpose for which He has sent it. Oh, just in a way that God's beleaguered, tired, and conquered people could have never expected. This God who made promises, promises, promises. He fulfilled every one of them. In an out-of-the-way place, unnoticed by the world, the glory of the Lord was revealed. The everlasting God through whom the world was made becomes the baby born to Mary and Joseph who dies a scandalous, embarrassing death on a cross. By his word, God sustained his people until he became one of his people. And he will sustain you. And he will build his church until that great day when he appears not in scandal, but in glory. Irrefutable glory. You can trust this God. You can trust this God with every risk you take with your life. And as you trust in Him, as you trust in His promises, you will find that though life in this world is hard, and it continues to be hard, you will see that as you behold your God, you will run and you will not be weary. You will walk and you will not faint. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for Your Word and we praise You that You continue to reign and rule over this world and that Your Word is going forward And your word will accomplish every purpose for which you've sent it. We praise you for your word of promise and your word of hope. And we pray this morning that as we've beheld you and that as we go out even into this week, as we continue to behold you, that we would live lives that bring glory to your great name. Father, we pray this morning, even as we think about world missions, that your gospel would go forward and it would triumph in this world. And Christ Jesus would be exalted and receive the prize for which he died. And it is our humble prayer you would use our lives to this great end. And we pray this in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ.